Thanks for joining us for Mississippi Prospects, a podcast focused on economic and community development in our state. Hosted by Jeff Rent and brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council. An organization's ability to adapt with a rapidly changing world can be the difference between success and failure. Each day, organizations are faced with new internal and external challenges, which require small or even big changes. Building resilience within an organization can set an organization on the path for sustainable growth. Our guest today is strategy advisor Rhea Steele. She helps organizations create the vision they need for tomorrow while implementing the steps to get them there today. Rhea has more than 13 years in association management and has helped numerous staffs connect their work with the organizational mission and impact. Please welcome Rhea Steele to Mississippi Prospects. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, every day we face different types of disruptions, both in our personal life and especially at work. But it's not the disruptions that really are the problem. It's how we respond to them. What are some of the different type of disruptions that we are facing today? So um, I would say there's there's kind of two buckets of disruptions that I would talk about. Uh, one is societal, right? All of us are pretty familiar with the, the disruptions that we've seen for the last number of years in society. One of the big things in the workforce is that we have multiple generations actually in the workforce together right now, right? We have um, boomers, we have Gen X, we have millennials, Y, Z, you know, and it keeps going and going, right? I mean, it, this is actually the first time that we've ever had this many generations working side by side in the workforce. Um, and that's a that's a pretty big deal right now. Another thing I would say societally is uh, artificial intelligence as well as consumerization of technology. So we are starting to see um, more and more significant impacts of artificial intelligence. It's it's really become an underlayer in pretty much everything we do now. Um, and we don't think about it. And it has pretty huge impacts in terms of the workforce and what we're seeing in human resources and finance, et cetera. Consumerization is also impacting us in that um, all of us are getting used to having all of our personal devices and want to have those and work in the same way that our personal devices allow us to work in the workforce, right? So technology teams and organizations have had to do major, major adjusting over the last several years to really support, you know, bringing your personal technology in and being able to be functional as, as an employee. Um, the gig economy is also a, a it's becoming much more of a, a disruption. I think a lot of um, companies are having to get used to functioning in this space where individuals will come to work for the company, but they don't. They want the flexibility to take other jobs if they feel like it, or they'll come to work for a company and they only want to do one specific thing, and they're comfortable with what that means from the company perspective, right? That they're not going to get a full time salary. I would say in the in the actual association space, we are um, seeing a lot of overlap between the services and supports that profit uh, for profit companies provide and nonprofit companies. Right, like a lot of for profit companies are starting to move into the nonprofit space and starting to compete, um, which is something that I think a lot of associations weren't prepared and nonprofits weren't prepared for. Um, additionally, I would say the the nature of volunteerism is changing. That's another pretty big disruptor. Um, whereas organizations used to have volunteers that would be willing to come in for you know eight hours a week or you know be dedicate very large chunks of time to the organization to provide support, people aren't willing to do that anymore. People will give an hour here, half hour there. 
Um, and they they really want these small bite sized volunteer opportunities. And so that's been you know that's really interrupting disrupting the business model for associations in terms of how how they engage their members. And then the last thing I would say is that learning models have just changed so much. Uh, you know, all of the pretty much every university now has online classes and they're treating um, they're looking a lot more at credential stacking. So you have, you know, you still have your traditional bachelor's associate's degree, master's degree tracks. But now you have people looking to get additional education, but they're looking at it as a, you know, one course, what credential can I get for, you know, 16, 20 hours of my time over the course of four to six weeks. And I think um, associations and nonprofits have to think about that, especially if they're in the space of providing professional development. A lot of these uh, disruptors, they go back to, at least in my mind as we're discussing this, back to the multi-generations all working together and that everybody has a different set of expectations or at least uh, outcomes that they're working towards. How important is it to find a cohesive uh, way to work together? You know, how do we go about that and manage those varying expectations? Because a baby boomer, uh, which is, you know, they're beginning to transition out of the workforce now or not beginning to, they are transitioning out of the workforce. Very di different expectations, you know, eight to five, you know, that's what I do. I've got a company pension. I've worked for this company for 35 years, you know, Gen Xer, Y, millennials, very different uh, in what they're looking for in life. Absolutely. And I think that that's also part of where this intersection with the gig economy is is kind of playing out. I would say that um, in terms of, of learning to work in that multi-generational workforce, I think we all have to do it. I don't think it's something that we can choose not to do. Um, it's really the nature of work. We have the, the boomers are moving out of the workforce, I think, slower than other generations have um, in the past. And you're also seeing some boomers coming back in, right? They retired and then they're like, I still want to do something, so I'm going to come back. Um, and you're right. There, there's absolutely a very different approach to work in terms of, you know, dedication, not dedication so much, but as uh, um, willingness to, you know, when you come in, when you work, when your workday ends, right, when it begins, the flexibility you expect during the course of the workday, right? To your point, boomers, you come in, you do your work, you leave. I would definitely say you're Gen Xers and millennials, right? Like I'll come in, but I like I have a dentist appointment, so I'm going to head out and I'm going to get my teeth cleaned and then I'll come back and work a little more. And then tonight when I get home, I'll probably watch a little TV and then I'm going to probably work another hour just to, you know, make sure I'm caught up and ready for tomorrow. And those two, I mean, those two work styles are very, um, they can cause tension, right? When you have employees with such different work styles, you know, in terms of managing and leading in uh, a multi-generational work environment, I still think you have to land at the individual level, right? You have to understand, you know, how each of the employees in your um, workspace, in your office wants to work, you know, how they contribute um, and their work style contributes to the team and also make sure everybody really understands each other's work styles and what each other is comfortable with, right? So if I'm sending a 10 p.m. email, you know, setting the expectation that like my staff don't have to respond to that at 10 o'clock at night, like I'm just getting it out because I need to get it out, right? And that's when I'm working. And so I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, around, you know, sensitivity to other people's work styles, um, recognizing that it's about the productivity and not how people get the work done. Um, and then also just making sure in those work environments that you're constantly refocusing on serving the needs of your members and customers. Because at the end of the day, it's the results that matter and not how you got there. 
It's kind of like we say in the game of golf that there are no pictures on the scorecard. There are many association disruptors that you had mentioned. Membership-driven organizations, and I work for one, um, are really facing challenges today. We're seeing uh, membership dropping in many membership-driven organizations, chambers, uh, other professional-related uh, organizations. What are the keys to adapting to these changes? How are you helping organizations still stay viable and relevant in a day when fewer people may think they need to be associated with or affiliated with some of these organizations? That's a great question. Um, I think, you know, part of remaining relevant um, in this this age of disruption that we're in, when people are questioning whether they should come to the nonprofit or to the for-profit for the information, is actually really, um, as an organization, looking inwardly and making sure you're crystal clear on what it is that you bring. What is your value proposition um, to your membership and why is it that they are coming to you? In a lot of cases, you know, the while members may go to um, a for-profit for a piece of educational material, they're still coming back to the nonprofit, the membership organization for the networks, for the connections with people, right? And so if, th- if that's your leverage point, you have to constantly be paying attention to that and create amazing experiences around the, the reasons your members are coming back to you. I think as an organization, you have to be very diligent in your um, strategic reflection to make sure that you are identifying identifying why it is members are coming to you, what the gaps are that you can provide services to them in, and where your sweet spot is, right? What do you do well as an association? And we're constantly internally evaluating the quality of service and value that we provide to our partners. And sometimes it comes in unintended ways where we perform a task or a service for one of our members and we're able to speak with them after and talk about the value through their association with us that they received. And I think a lot of people shortchange themselves in that way. I would also say in those instances, too, you have a real opportunity to lengthen the conversation, right? Ask questions. Don't just say, hey, so glad that we provided you with great service. Hope to do it again. You know, you have the opportunity to end that conversation, ask, you know, what else could we be doing for you? What was your experience with us? You know, how could we further support and meet your needs? You know, so you you can gather as much information as possible from those individual interactions to really build a, a more holistic picture of what your members need from you. And we also take those opportunities to use those as case studies uh, to show value to potential members of our uh, organization. And, you know, I think that's a great selling point. And getting the third-party validation, your members saying we were able – you know, they were valuable to us in this way. And I would say that actually is – at times more powerful than the association saying that that were they're valuable, right? Having other members go out to their colleagues, their networks and say, oh my gosh, like you have to belong to this organization because they give you X, Y, and Z and the service I got from them was amazing and this is how it helped me in my career, right? The, the more that can happen, the, the greater value your organization is going to provide. So having a strong foundation is a key driver for organizational resilience. Um, Now, how can organizations better identify their strengths and build upon them? I've worked in many places where you did your job every day. You knew what you did. You knew what you were working towards. But really, nobody could sit down and tell me, what do we do well? And 
I find that more and more and I'm astounded when I, especially when I'm new somewhere that people can't tell us what we do well. Well, and that's, you know, that's it, it. That actually is, I think, the crux of the challenge for most organizations is being able to articulate what we do well as well as our value proposition. Um, the the process that Vistacova takes uh, our um, clients through when we start these conversations with them is there are two main um, pieces that we work first on with them. The first is um, helping the organization identify their core audiences. So really talking and, and doing a deep dive generally with the board of director, directors or the staff where they're really talking through who who's the universe that we serve, right? Who's everybody? Get it all out on paper, like, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 audiences, whatever it is. Then start really looking at them and saying, well, who do we really serve? Like, who are the people that if we can't serve anybody else, we're serving them? Um, and who benefits the most from the services we provide? And once you go through that process, you, you've you identified your core audiences, and then you can start talking about what their needs are, right? So um, in any membership organization, multiple of your core audiences are going to have different needs. And so being very clear about what those needs are and why they're coming to the organization is really the first one of the first pieces of work that we'll do. The next one is that we'll um, look at putting together a program impact matrix for the organization. So we'll use um, a lot of the data the organization already has and have them list out all of the programs that are in place currently at the organization that they're running. We'll have them look at the revenue for all of those programs. We'll have them then rate the actual um, perceived value of the program. And then if they have the um, information, we also want them to, to include the, um, the staffing, like how many staff or what staff hours are applied towards mm-hmm. the program. Once you have all of that information, you can actually start to pretty quickly see which programs are your high value programs, which are the ones that are you're investing the most resources in. You can also look at those ones that are not generating revenue, probably low value and might be those kind of sacred cows that nobody wants to get rid of. And once you have that picture with your core audiences and your programs, you can really start making serious decisions about what you want to do as an organization. You can also start talking much more clearly about what your value, the value is that you bring as an organization. I always call it moving the needle and taking a hard look. And I've seen very popular programs that didn't move the needle that uh, eventually were spun out or spun off. And those are tough decisions, especially if it's popular or it's nostalgic. That's what I really think it was. There was more nostalgia and people – I guess it's human nature to hold on to some of these programs. And I, I do say some – I will say some organizations will also make the decision to keep programs like that because of the nostalgia because having those types of programs is still important in the the cultural fabric of the association. Is it helpful to have external input maybe even from non-members looking at your organization and not you as an org- – uh, as you know evaluating their processes and programs? But maybe people who could potentially use these services but having their input without them being a member and they don't have a vested interest in it yet. Absolutely. I would say that there's actually two sources of external input that I would look look to as an association professional. The first one is the environment, like global environment at it writ large, right? What's going on in the world that actually touches your association and and really tracking and paying attention to those things. 
The other source of external information that I'd look at would be um, anything else going on in the industry that your association or organization is in, right? Anything that your competitors are doing, anything um, that you're, you can get information from your partners about what they, you know, are seeing from in the industry. And also sort of paying attention to what your collaborators are doing, right? So those organizations that you work with on a regular basis. And so getting a sense from them um, about what's going on in the environment and the industry and then using that as just another input into um, into sort of understanding the intersection between your organization, your members, and then the rest of the industry. I will also say, you know, Surveys of non-members, right, or is also a really great way. Like, talk to the people that you think should be members that aren't, and ask them questions about why not, or where are they going instead of coming to you. That really adds empirical data to help make decisions. Then it's like any like any statistical model. The better your data coming in, the more data points and sets that you can have to pull from. Obviously, the better the outcome or the results. Let me ask you about, you had in a presentation that you shared with me, you mentioned incorporating reflections into vision and goals. What do you mean by incorporating reflections into these? So what I would say is that when you when you think about all of the inputs that we just talked about, right, you, you're talking about your your inputs from your members, you're talking about the in the larger environment, the global environment, the organization functions in, the industry environment, the organization function, functions in, what the competitors are doing, what the non-member non folks are, the decisions they're making. Once you have that picture, once you have all of those data points, you can actually start looking across them for patterns, right? And, and start identifying what is going on around the organization that the organization might address. That's the point at which reflection comes in. You start using that and line it up with what you've you know decided your strategic, your business plan is or your strategic plan is. And you really start to question and also reflect on what you should be doing more of, right? What you should be doing differently, where you need to build capacity as an organization, and whether or not those goals that you laid out, whether it was a year ago, five years ago, are still relevant to the organization. And whether you are, the actions you're taking now are still the right actions to achieve those goals given all of this data you have about the environment. I see a lot of organizations uh, don't necessarily have clearly defined goals, and I think that leaves them sort of spinning their wheels at times. A uh, firm believer in short-term, you know, intermediate and long-term goals. How important can that be in building that foundation for success, especially in a membership-driven organization where you're trying to to provide benefit, value, and service. Absolutely. I think that the goals, organizations actually setting goals is critical. I mean, in reality, most of your staff in the organization, they, I mean, what would be driving their work if you didn't have goals, right? You, I mean, you. what I should say is what would be consistently driving their work, right? So all of us, you know, we could put, we could take one mission statement and your interpretation of how to achieve that mission and would be completely different than mine, right? It's only by creating goals that we actually have a common understanding of the different or the the approach that we are going to take to achieve that mission. So creating goals for um, an organization, I believe, is is critically important, as is reflecting on them and using them in decision making. So, you know, when um, any conversation that either staff or board members have talking about whether it's new um, 
new products, new services, keeping products that you have should involve a sentence that says, how does this help us achieve or meet our goals? Now, by trade, I'm a professional communicator, and yet uh, we are notoriously bad at communicating often within the professional work environment. How, what role does this play in setting up uh, an organization for more resilience? That's a great question. So um, communication for me involves uh, a number of different um, vectors. So communication, what you want to be doing is communicating publicly and internally as often and as possible with as relevant information as possible. The more the organization is transparently communicating and um, informing members of what's going on, keeping members feeling that they're in the know, the the greater your greater resilience you're building in that situation because most people in a um, a situation where they're experiencing disruption are going to default back to like the sort of the um, least trust situation, right? When you are when you have built a lot of trust up through communications, through providing information, through you know even as an organization talking about potential disruptors before they actually disrupt, you you are actually preparing your members and you're you're helping create an engagement with them where they actually already trust you, and um, continuing those communications with them will help sort of weather the storm, right? In terms of if if and when disruption actually happens. Yeah, I think the disruption obviously is inevitable and the resilience helps you, like you said, weather that storm, be flexible and uh, get past it. I've often found that internal communication is one of the, the weakest links uh, for any number of reasons. And a really common one that I've run across is that people are very protective of their information. They use information as power and they feel that if they're too open – that they're setting themselves up uh, to lose their job or have their tasks taken away. And I find that's often a really big barrier in any work environment, really, within any organization. How can you communicate with them? You know, it's a challenge every day for me uh, to find ways to get people to open up and move out of their silos and see that we're all working on the same team. Is there a good strategy to get people to to move into this more open uh, atmosphere of communication? I think there are a variety of different strategies for doing that. Um, I've, uh, you know, one of the strategies I've used really is around um, positive rewards for sharing information and creating opportunities for employees to share. So uh, at one organization, what I did was I actually um, created what we called lunch bunches, and they were um, 45 minutes every Thursday. And I started just inviting staffers to come share something that was going on in their area. So whether it was like a grant that they had just gotten, so they're coming and sharing to the rest of the organization about the new grant, or um, a new program or service, or a conference that they were putting on that they had coming up. And, um, you know, by doing that and by having, a you know, a small group of staff that was supportive of it and would regularly go, it actually kind of snowballed in on itself, right? That either you were, we were getting sort of this positive, the folks presenting got positive reactions and responses and questions and felt like more of the staff knew about what was going on in their department. And, you know, then it, it snowballed into a situation where people were asking to be put on the agenda because they wanted to come share information. I think creating small opportunities for people to share is really important. The other thing I'll say is that the leadership of the organization also needs to 
really support sharing and be very transparent in their sharing. One of the things I've seen along those lines is, you know, a lot of times when an organization's facing disruption, everybody's nobody's ready to talk quite yet, right? It's we don't have enough information to share it or we're still trying to figure things out. Um, and what I have found is that the organizations that weather disruption best are the ones where leadership says says we're experiencing disruption. This is happening to us. We haven't figured out exactly what our answer is yet, but these are the steps that we're taking to start figuring the answer out, right? So you you can provide information and, and be transparent in your communications to staff, even if you don't have all of the puzzle pieces. It seems like you'd have to create sort of a safe space that people know that they can – it's really easy to share the positive stuff. Um, it's the challenges that they're facing and the negative uh, – issues that they're dealing with, I find that often they're the most challenging to get people to share with you. Instead, they internalize it and it snowballs. And I would absolutely agree. And I would also add that it has to happen over time, right? So, you know, your first, you know, creating a safe space for sharing is not the first time you decide to share is in the middle of the crisis. I mean, you should definitely be sharing then, <laughs> right? But you actually want to build this over time. You want to actually build in the culture of sharing and of rewarding sharing. So somebody who's listening today and, you know, we've thrown a lot of information at them. Where can they begin this process? Because obviously, you've got to take that first step. What should somebody do to start beginning the process of building resilience within their own organization? That's a great question. Um, I think that there's a number of different different places. I would definitely encourage organizations to think about what information they do have um, and what a level of awareness they have of their environment and um, start there and, and start by, you know, finding those gaps and start filling the gaps, start collecting more information. Um, from the staffing perspective, I think I would encourage employee employers to think really carefully about where their staff are at now, actually assess how staff are feeling about the organization, um, what their level of tolerance is for risk um, and disruption. So if if um, if staff are not feeling great about the organization, if they're really worried or if there's not a culture of communication or sharing, the, the organization needs to start addressing that now in order to ensure that when they are disrupted, they, they have built that resilience. Um, a lot, there is a lot that can be done both among members and among staff in building and helping them build more positive relationships with each other so that when you do reach a point of disruption, they already have those positive relationships to fall back on. No disruptions here. Strategy advisor, Rhea Steele on Mississippi Prospects. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Mississippi Prospects is brought to you by the Mississippi Economic Development Council, the Mississippi Development Authority, Cooperative Energy, Greater Jackson Alliance, Entergy, Mississippi Power, Tennessee Valley Authority, Watkins and Eager, Butler Snow, Jones Walker, and produced by Pottery Studios. If you have questions or comments, join us on Twitter at MEDC Info.